Welcome to the Real Estate Guys radio program. It's summer and what is hot? Is it the housing market? Is it consumer confidence? We're going to hear from some economists today on the Real Estate Guys radio program. Why is it that in every horror movie, there's a pretty girl who goes into a creepy house and heads down into the scary basement? Nothing good ever happens in the basement. What is she thinking? I feel the same way when I continue to see Americans dump billions into 401ks, IRAs, and mutual funds, even self-directed IRAs. On top of that, they continue to perpetuate the massive U.S. banking system by keeping large deposits at banks and using credit cards and other loans for purchases. Don't they realize what's going to happen? More profit for them and less profit for you. Nothing good ever happens in the basement. Now there's another way. Visit our friends at Paradigm Life by going to www.beerbank.com and learn how to become your own banker today. Live where you want to live, but invest where the numbers make sense. Even better, invest where you have a solid team to support you. We've been hearing great things about Memphis, Tennessee, and Terry Kerr from Mid-South Homebuyers. Since 2002, Terry and his team have been delivering turnkey rental property solutions ideal for out-of-area real estate investors. So if you're looking for affordable, trouble-free, turnkey investment property, call Terry. Use our resource hotline at 888-510-6838, extension 118. That's 888-510-6838, extension 118. Or find them in the resources area of our website at realestateguysradio.com. Come meet Terry Kerr when the Real Estate Guys come to Memphis for an investor field trip September 28th to 30th. Get all the details at realestateguysradio.com and click on events. Welcome to the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helms. Happy summer to you. We're having an awesome summer. Just finished up our two-day event about due diligence, the uh, markets and the properties and uh Boy, we are exhausted but excited. Let's meet the guys, our financial strategist co-host, Russell Gray. You're more exhausted than I am. <laughs> and the man we call the godfather of real estate, but investing in seven different decades, Bob Helms. I'm actually pretty scintillated, excited. Uh, what an amazing event we had. It's a reminder that that stuff isn't easy. It's grunchy, dull, dry stuff. And the only thing about it, it's urgent. So you got to get excited about it. Yeah, we spent uh, two days with a whole bunch of folks, and uh, big hello to everyone who uh, joined us and sat through those long days of charts and graphs and information. But here's what we talked about. Basically, how do we analyze a real estate market and then find one that makes sense for us as investors? And then once we're in contract on a property, what are the things we have to do to conduct our due diligence? And it really has us thinking about where we are in the housing market and where opportunities lie for real estate investors and what's going on. And of course, last week, you probably heard our interview with G. Edward Griffin, uh, which is always great to spend time with Ed. And it was at the the wrap-up of the Freedom Fest event. And so we had a chance while we were there to interview all kinds of folks, including the two people you're going to hear from today, finding out, hey, what is going on in the economy, in the world of real estate, in jobs, and all that great stuff. Yeah, you know, I mean, Bob talked about it being urgent to do the due diligence or to just learn how to do the due diligence. And you can't do due diligence until you learn how to do the due diligence. So, in fact, that's even hard to say. Anyway, it's just, you know, we've, as we've talked about many, many times in the past on the show, how important it is to understand the economics behind the real estate. You know, again, it's almost overkill, but I just don't think you can emphasize enough that the supply, the flow, the cost of capital really is what drives the real estate markets. If people don't have access to capital, they cannot do real estate. And everything is driven by incomes. 
You know, so real estate is all based on bonds. Bonds are all based on incomes. Uh, obviously, if you're buying rental property, that's all based on incomes, which is based on jobs. It's an election year. It's a huge hot topic. And it really all revolves around the macroeconomics. So it's it's whenever we get a chance to get around really brilliant people that have a lot of different perspectives. I mean, there's guys, these think tanks, all they do are study just these little narrow pieces of the economy. And then we kind of get to flit above that a little bit and look at what each person has to say and then try to see the bigger picture and then move down into a sub-market and make good investment decisions and debt decisions. There's so much to learn and there's so much to watch. And you can't, as we learned at the event this weekend, you can't be watching too many markets at once. And economists, by the very nature, are looking at the overall macroeconomic picture. But that doesn't give us enough on-the-street information as real estate investors. We have to dig down into the microeconomics of the area that we're in and figure out, okay, where can I exploit the differences in marketplaces to get my unfair share of returns for real estate? Yeah, the other the other hard part is that 99% of all the economics you hear out there and all the financial pundits and talk is all about stocks, bonds, paper assets. And if you don't know how to draw the connection, because those are not disconnected, they're interrelated with real estate. But the connection isn't often made in the commentary. And one of the things we try to bring out in the show is helping you make that connection between the things you hear in mainstream media, the things you hear in TV, the things you hear economists talking about and trying to figure out, well, how does that relate back to me as a real estate investor? And, you know, it's not easy, but it is kind of interesting. And it isn't really that complicated, but you do have to spend some time on it. So hopefully today will be a great show and you will uh, learn some things that you didn't know before. Well, speaking of the stock market and uh, the the very fact that a lot of the information we get is prepared by folks who are looking primarily at those markets, the bond and the stock market. So we have to get our head a little bit in that game. And in the coming weeks, you're going to hear some interviews with folks who are going to be talking about bonds and dividend-paying stocks and real estate investment trusts and different parts of the economy that we mean as investors aren't necessarily thinking of that but we also realize that people listen to our show although obviously you wouldn't be listening if you weren't interested in real estate it may not be the only thing you invest in and so especially if you invest in many things you need to understand how they all kind of work together and they do our first guest knows a ton about that. Gene Epstein joined Barron's in February of 1992 as the commodities editor, and the next year he became the weekly's first economics editor and the first to write the column Economic Beat, which is his responsibility to this very day. Gene also writes features and cover stories on economic and social trends. Before joining Barron's, Gene did a 13-year stint at the New York Stock Exchange, and I think you're going to get a chance to enjoy him a bunch. He's taught economics at the City University of New York and St. John's University, holds an MA in the subject from the new school and a BA in history from Brandeis University. Gene also has a book called Econo Spinning, How to Read Between the Lines When the Media Manipulates the Numbers. And you'll hear from Gene Epstein when we come back. You're tuned to the Real Estate Guys Radio Network. I'm your host, Robert Helms. Live nationwide, you're listening to the Real Estate Guys. Find out more at realestateguysradio.com. Are you ready to profit in paradise? Hi, it's Robert Helms. And if you think real estate investing means tenants, toilets, and termites, think again. Located just a short plane ride from the U.S., a virtually untouched paradise awaits. The beautiful country of Belize. When you go to Belize with the Real Estate Guys, you'll spend four fabulous days discovering one of the most intriguing real estate markets I've ever seen. With its jungle rainforests, pristine beaches, and 81-degree turquoise water, Belize is one of the most beautiful places on Earth. Plus, it's considered one of the top seven tax havens in the world. And why U.S. real 
real estate continues to drop, Belize property is on the rise, and many experts think the best is yet to come. But don't just take my word for it. Come experience Belize firsthand at our upcoming investor field trip. When you join us, you'll discover the many reasons we love Belize, like tremendously undervalued beachfront land, super low taxes, ease of doing business, and so much more. Get the details at realestateguysradio.com. Just click on events. See paradise for yourself. Click events at realestateguysradio.com, and I'll see you in beautiful Belize. Hello, this is Robert Kiyosaki. I'm the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And if you're serious about learning how to invest in real estate, listen to the Real Estate Guys. They really know what they're talking about. And welcome back to the Real Estate Guys radio program. We're in beautiful Las Vegas, Nevada at Freedom Fest, an annual gathering of uh, amazing people who have lots of different things to talk about. Our uh, next guest certainly fits that bill. Please welcome to the program, Mr. Gene Epstein. How are you, sir? Good. Uh, nice to be here. Thanks for uh, being here and giving us some time. 20 years with Barron's. You've got quite the uh, experience there. Tell us about where you see where we are in the economy today. Well, we're uh, not in a very good place in the economy. I, I take it uh, that's not exactly surprising news for the people who are listening. Uh, I don't believe we're going to slip back into recession. We still have indications that the economy is crawling along. Uh, the unemployment rate is still above 8%. Uh, maybe uh, by the end of the year it'll be uh, at 8%, uh, but uh, not much lower than that. Uh, that's especially painful to all the people who are looking for jobs. And uh, I don't see uh, any great uh, changes in store. We're crawling along in terms of economic growth at a little under Two percent, maybe we'll do a little bit, a bit better than that. And uh, by the second half of the year, uh, softer energy prices are certainly helping. That's about the only uh, potentially good news uh, for the economy uh, that does sustain uh, the consumer. But uh, beyond that, uh, I, I see neither uh, a great boom or a great bust, but just uh, more of the same. All right. Well, uh, one of the things that was uh, fascinating to me, and I want to talk to you about this, is is you wrote a book several years ago that really talks about the difference between the numbers that we're given and that we get from the media versus kind of the real numbers. And obviously, in terms of employment, there's been that whole argument about what really is unemployment and who really has a job and so forth. But talk to us a little bit about the numbers that we hear in the mainstream media and how we can figure out what's what's the real scoop. Well, actually, with respect to unemployment, uh, what I've uh, been noticing recently, because I did a lot of work on long-term unemployment, is that, in fact, uh, ironically, the good news, but of course I put that in quotes and people out of work for a year or two should throw tomatoes at me when I say that. <laughs> Ironically, we're really not at, at highs in terms of long-term unemployment. We're actually, and it's complicated, but the punchline is we're about where we were in the early 1980s when we had the last um, serious recession. And the reason I stress that is that when people look at numbers in terms of long-term unemployment, they get the impression and they start singing the old mantra that we have structural unemployment employment, that something is unstuck in the economy and that there's no way for older folks to find jobs. There's no way for them to sort themselves out. Well, 
they did sort themselves out in the 1980s. Uh, there was that same cry, the same cry from the New York Times in the early 90s, that again, there are people who are going to be out of work permanently. They'll never uh, be able to get back uh, on the merry-go-round, if I may call it that, of the U.S. economy. But in fact, since uh, there's no indication that long-term unemployment is any more, thing, any more serious than it was in the 1980s, then the punchline is simply that we need similar policies uh, that were in place in the early 1980s to get the economy growing again so that these people can find jobs. Uh, there is no supply-side problem. There isn't a labor problem that a lot of people, especially the New York Times and others, like to stress. Uh, and so that's one thing I'm finding, but that requires a great deal of knowledge about the ironies and the ins and outs of the measure of long-term unemployment uh, to be able to say that. And that, that takes a little work. It doesn't take brilliance. It just takes the ability to call the Bureau of Labor Statistics, find out how the numbers are compiled, make comparisons, and then realize that, in fact, our long-term unemployment problem is no more serious and no less serious than it was in the 1980s. We sorted it out then. We could do it now. Now, what about the other kinds of numbers that we hear? You know, hear the consumer price index, and people say, well, there's not inflation, and yet it certainly doesn't count some of the things that, that you and I need every day. Uh, how are some of those numbers manipulated? Well, I, uh, you know, I'm uh, ironically, uh, uh, even though a lot of my friends don't trust a lot of the public numbers, I believe the consumer price index is obviously a gross approximation of what goes on. Uh, it actually, in certain ways, it ways overstates inflation. To some degree, it it understates inflation. Uh, it, it, we're not at this point uh, in experiencing uh, the problem of severe price inflation. Uh, that's uh, thank thankfully not one of our problems. Uh, we've got uh, many more serious problems. And I do believe, however, that uh, that we could, uh, a few years down the road, given uh, the profligacy of the Federal Reserve, uh, suffer severe price inflation. But from what you need, you know, Milton Friedman said, and of course he was quite right, that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. You've got to have a lot of printing of money. We are getting that. But I believe that Milton Friedman would also have agreed that 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 to get it going, you generally need tight labor markets, a lot of slack labor markets, and probably we're not going to suffer severe price inflation. Now, uh, those people who say, uh, readers who write me that, uh, well, they're paying a lot for this and a lot for that, well, you know, the consumer price index is no great shakes. It's just a very, very rough measure of some sort of non-existent average, uh, and uh, a lot of people are paying that average, a lot of people are not. Uh, paying that average. It depends upon where you live, it depends upon your circumstances. But I would not say that price inflation is a problem in the way that it was in the, in the late 1970s, when it really was for most people running double digits. Well, and, you know, obviously the, the Fed has some agenda in keeping inflation in check, certainly, but they seem to be more afraid of deflation. Yes. Well, sure. No, the Fed, the Fed's agenda with respect to keeping inflation in check uh, is uh, is really uh, like a you know a prostitute objecting uh, to too much sex. The fact <laughs> of the matter is, the Federal Reserve is basically uh, printing money like there's no tomorrow, uh, pitching interest rates at uh, below the rate of any any kind of rate of inflation. They're obviously going full bore, full guns uh, with uh, with trying to goose up the economy. 
and they're hoping and praying, and maybe they'll be lucky, I think they'll be lucky for the next couple of years, uh, that price inflation does not heat up. So indeed, uh, they've given up on that altogether, on that dual mandate, as it's called, which they've never been able to handle, the dual mandate of promoting uh, low unemployment and promoting uh, low inflation. Yeah. They can't do that. They no, can't stable prices. Stable so, prices. So um, tell us this. You know, a lot of our... Uh, listeners are obviously interested in the economy, but specifically in, in real estate. Um, given the seat you sit on, what what might you guess about what we could expect in the housing market in the coming years? Well, you tell me. Uh, you're the real estate guys. I actually have been, up to now, been fairly lucky with a forecast I made a couple of years ago that, uh, that home ownership is probably uh, going to decline back to where it was uh, for the for a couple of decades and for the uh, 80s and into the 90s at around 64 percent, 65 percent. It's still it's it's at now I believe at around 66 percent, 67 percent. So and and what what's going to happen to those households is that they're going to increasingly rent. And so I wrote a story called Renter Nation, a bit of an exaggeration because obviously it, I'm st- I was still forecasting that uh, slightly under two thirds of the population of households would still be owning homes. But I recommended and uh, and the forecast turned out pretty well, I recommended buying a real estate investment trust that focused on the rental of homes. There are entrepreneurs who are buying up homes that are in foreclosure and renting them. And uh, I believe that probably for the next uh, year or two, despite the fact that house prices have probably bottomed, uh, more, more and more households, as they get formed, are going to stay longer in rental dwellings. And so the shift is going to continue from about uh, you know 34%, 36% um, balance between between renting and, and owning to about 36%, 64%. So I think that the wave of the near term is toward uh, renting. And that's where I would put my money if I were investing in real estate investment trusts. Now, Gene, you've uh, been with Barron's for, for 20 years. That's a long time to be anywhere. And uh, certainly you've seen things change, things change over time. Tell us the role that you think today is necessary to get the message out to people and for them to have the information they need to make good investment decisions in today's strange economic climate. Well, it's a it's a role that uh, that no no specific individual can fulfill. Uh, I hope uh, to do uh, a, a more than mediocre job. It appalls me that uh, the problem with so many of my colleagues uh, is that they don't get underneath the numbers. They don't recognize that most of these numbers that we live by are put out by the government. And uh, that doesn't mean, by the way, and I stress over and over again uh, to uh, the one reader a month at least who writes me that those numbers are cooked. I do say, look, don't trust the numbers from China. Yeah, those numbers are cooked. Those bureaucrats are answering answering to the politicians. But in fact, uh, had there been a conspiracy to cook the numbers on behalf of the Clinton administration or the Bush administration or any of them, uh, it would have gotten out by now. Uh, there would have been a few bureaucrats who spoke to the press. There actually was an attempt uh, on the part of Richard Nixon, by the way, to browbeat the Bureau of Labor Statistics into giving him unemployment numbers that that he preferred, and he actually fired a lot of people, all of them Jews, because he had Jew 
Jews on the brain, get rid of those Jews and we'll have unemployment uh, estimates that we'll like. Well, in fact, while he did get rid of a few Jews, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics kept its integrity. That's the only time there was ever an attempt to do that. But the point is that, with that said, the government is not dishonest. Those statistical bureaucracies have certain traditions, and many of them are pretty smart. But there's so much bureaucracy that goes on with the way the numbers are produced. So many problems that are created that what you have to do is read all the literature, all the stuff the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts out, and the Bureau of Economic Analysis as well, but more than that, talk to those people. Get them on the phone. They are actually people who have, who, who have a lot of time in their hands. After all, they are civil servants, and, they, and many of them like to talk to you. They, I've cultivated relationships with people at these statistical agencies for a long time, so that, for example, then you won't be reporting uh, a number like uh, average annual earnings uh, of non-supervisory workers. That's a number that Wall Street loves. You, you can teach Wall Street that since these numbers are rough estimates, since they're often subject to revision, they, they do not have the finality of a market close. You have to, we had a situation in, in, uh, in September of last year in which the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that employment was, gains were zero in that month. Uh, uh, employment grinds to a halt. Three months later, that number was revised up to 100,000. The markets fell on the day when that zero announcement was made. Uh, had the announcement of 100,000 been made, which is what they said three months ago actually happened, yeah. the markets would not respond. So I try to caution readers, caution the markets into, into not making too much of a number that comes out. It adds a little, it adds its grain of sand. It tells us a little bit more about what's going on in the economy, but don't take it too literally. Well, those are a number of lessons, a number of do's and don'ts about how to deal with numbers. But I try to do the best I can. I only wish my colleagues would work a little harder, do a little bit more homework. Well, you know, there sure is plenty to write about today, isn't there? Yes. Uh, <laughs> too much. Too much. As you know, We're living in interesting times. And as I always say, God, let's pray for a little boredom every once in a while, these days especially. Hey, Gene, thanks so much for your time today and for all the work that you do. You're tuned to the Real Estate Guys radio program. More when we come back from Freedom Fest in Las Vegas. I'm your host, Robert Helms. Stay with us. Real estate investment advice right in your mailbox. Sign up for the free Real Estate Guys newsletter at realestateguysradio.com. You already know that Dallas-Fort Worth is one of the strongest real estate markets in the country. Now all you need is a great source for turnkey properties. Great news! Wilson Investment Properties has been providing fully renovated, rented, positive cash flow properties to real estate investors for over 10 years. Founder Tom Wilson is an avid investor himself. With over 200 units of his own, you know he understands what investors need. Contact Tom and his team at 888-510-6838, extension 123, or send an email to wilson at realestateguysradio.com. Hello, I'm Herman Kane, and you are listening to the Dynamic Real Estate Guys. Welcome back to the Real Estate Guys radio program. Thanks so much for listening, however you do that. If you're listening on the radio or on the podcast or on our website or somebody else's website, thanks for tuning into the show. Always uh, interesting to get around uh, economists and uh, hear their take on what's going on. Yes, it is. It's uh, He made some interesting comments. One of the things that uh, jumped out to me 
uh, was it, he said, we need policies like we had in the early 80s. Yeah. Bob remembers those policies, right? I mean, we needed high interest rates to break the back of inflation. That's what uh, Fed Chairman Volcker did. Um, and he came in and he raised those interest rates. He made it very enticing to save. People started putting money in the bank. Their dollars, you know, started having more value. Then eventually, I mean, it disrupted a lot of the financial markets, but they healed. And I don't know, Bob, I mean, you know, you were in the real estate market back then. What was that like? It was interesting and very tough, but it was a tough game for everybody. One of the things we think about is that the only thing we had then was high inflation, high unemployment. Well, we had all of that, but we had more than that. We were on the verge of the savings and loan debacle, which was blamed for a large part of that problem and the outcome. By the way, my memory of those times, and it's just memory, could be terribly off. Uh, when I think of the unemployment numbers in those days, it wasn't 8%. It was double-digit yeah. unemployment in terms of the percentage of the working population. Today, we're looking microscopically at what part they're counting, who's really out there. There are people that have jobs but have no income. Are they employed? Well, count any way you like to. Somehow they have to get along, maybe out of their savings. You know, it was an interesting time. The I specifically remember the interest rates that were available for the consumer were up into the 18% and higher range. As far as real estate was concerned, one of the ways we got along, uh, and this was loosely called, some of you will remember the term, creative financing. Yep. Guess what? We use creative financing in many ways all the time. What we were talking about then was the fact that you virtually couldn't get institutional financing. If you could, you couldn't afford it, but you couldn't qualify. So what we did selling houses, particularly, we did what we called wraps or all-inclusive deeds of trust. And it was an interesting game. I'll just take a minute to talk about this. If you had an underlying loan, you couldn't get a new loan. You wanted to sell your property. Your choices were two. You got to carry back or you got to find some way for them to come up with some additional financing. So what very often happened is, whether you liked it or not, if you wanted to move out of the property, you would end up wrapping a loan around that underlying loan. Let me give you some ideas. The market rate is 18%. I've got an 8% first on it. I could wrap that, carry back a second at, say, 12%. There were thirds, by the way, at 15 and 16%. So they would all wrap around it, the idea being I'm now the banker. I've got to pay an underlying loan, and I'm going to make some profit on this. I've got an underlying 8% loan, let's say. If my loan is at 12%, what am I doing? I'm collecting 12% on the entire amount. But on the portion that's borrowed, that is the underlying loan, I'm paying 8%. So I make 12% on my equity and 4% on the difference. So if the numbers worked, it could be a thing that would get you by. Nobody really wanted to be in that situation. All right. I, I want to I stop you here because I think this is critical to understand. This was a bitter pill to swallow, and it worked. A lot of people, including Peter Schiff in his latest book, are talking about some very bitter pills we're going to have to swallow to fix what's happened because of policy in the past. So back to the point of Gene saying, what we need is some policies like we had. I think that's a very interesting thing for a guy who's been around for a long time to say. Yeah, Schiff has been vociferous on this particular topic, and uh, you know it's hard not to... Uh agree with his logic. I mean, it just makes a lot of sense. And especially when you look back historically, 
as Gene was talking about, you hear another guy come in and say, hey, that, that's what we need to have happen. And to your point, Robert, nobody really wants to see that happen. But to Bob's point, you know, at least when it's done, people find a way to work around it. One of the challenges, you know, because, you know, of course, coming out of the mortgage business and watching the change in the mortgage business, one of the things that was coming up at legislatively is that the with all the mortgage regulation is that if you started carrying back loans and you did too many of these carry back loans today, not back then, today, then you fall under this national mortgage licensing. And this is the challenge when you've got regulation in because the creativity that Bob alludes to that actually came in and began the process of healing the market is hindered when there's all kinds of legislation that prevents the market from being creative. I mean, I understand that people are like, oh, well, we got to rein in on the creativity on Wall Street because of the derivatives and blah, blah, blah. But it wasn't the creativity that was the problem with the derivatives. The problem with the derivatives, it was fraud. I mean, they were, they were selling stuff that didn't really exist. And so they really didn't address the core problem. None of those guys have ever gone to jail. And that was just outright fraud. You know, what, what I heard Gene say was, we could fix this. We could go back to that if we would. He's an interesting guy. He's been around this a long, long time, and I don't see him as an alarmist. He wasn't happy. He didn't like what was going on, but he seemed pretty mellow about the fact that don't count every number people say is biblical. It's not. You got to, first of all, see how important it is, how different it really is, but mostly don't panic. I think the other thing that was really notable for us as real estate investors is his comments about the labor market. Because he said, look, we're not really worried about inflation because we don't have tight labor. If you really interpret what he's saying, and this is corroborated with other articles that we've looked at and clues in the news over the last year, what's really happening is the burden of inflation is being sucked up by weak labor. In other words, low wages low and lower wages and jobs leaving the country to lower product lower costs to do uh, venues is actually absorbing the inflation and hiding the fact that the Fed is printing as much. Because he said the Fed is printing money like there's no tomorrow. And everybody looks at that and says, well, why doesn't it show up in the prices? Because the middle class worker is, is getting the shaft with that. And those jobs are going offshore. And then you look at, well, okay, the oil production, that's helping a little bit. Before we talk oil, I just want to make sure that everyone's following this because you guys have your head around it and again no investor left behind if it's not obvious to you the softness in the labor market means that there's competition for jobs so someone will take a lower check if we had a tighter labor market then companies would have to bid for those services and we would see the inflation work through to jobs eventually it will but we're not there yet well and, and the other thing is is you know minimum wage isn't a solution to that because if you bring the minimum wage up then if the job can be taken offshore it it will be. And this is the irony because the Fed sits there and tells you, hey, we're stimulating, we're putting money into the economy to help the job market. It does just the opposite because the first thing that goes up are commodities. It squeezes companies' margins and they've got to make it up somewhere. They make it up on the back of labor. Inflation always hits the working guy. Now, you were talking about oil production. Obviously, one of the things that doesn't show up in the CPI is energy, but oil production and pricing certainly affects cost all across the board. Well, it's the same thing. So now we have oil prices going down, and the beneficiary of that should be the consumer. We should see anything petroleum-based, from gas to uh, plastics to all those, everything petroleum-based, or it has a lot of transportation involved in it because, you know, moving goods back and forth has gas costs built into the into the landed costs. Like the components? 
components of housing all have to be moved to the site, and that costs money if, if oil and gas are expensive. Absolutely. So the beneficiary should be the consumer as prices go down, but prices don't go down because this mandate that Gene talked about is to keep prices stable. That's code for anytime the American people become more productive, the Fed inflates or devalues the dollar so that what ends up happening is the benefit of the increased productivity doesn't get received by the marketplace. It gets eaten by the Fed, and it's just it's a ripoff. Not that I have an opinion on the matter at all. All right, well, good stuff, and uh, has our brain spinning, obviously. Uh, we've got another guest in a moment, but first it's time to play Real Estate Trivia. Your chance to win a prize by knowing today's trivia question, and it's going to be simple. You're going to hear the question as soon as you know the answer, or more to take a guess, send us an email to trivia at realestateguysradio.com, trivia at realestateguysradio.com. When you do, be sure to include your full name, your mailing address, so we can send you your prize and, of course, the answer to the question. And the prize, it's an autographed copy of Equity Happens, Building Lifelong Wealth with Real Estate, our book on real estate investing. That could be yours if you know today's trivia question. Before we give that to you, let's go back to last week where we asked, what is the highest denomination bill issued by the United States for public circulation? The answer was the $10,000 bill. Now, today, the highest denomination currently in circulation, and some people guessed this, is $100. Uh, but the highest denomination ever printed was the $100,000 gold certificate. However, those were only used uh, for transactions between the Federal Reserve and the Treasury. They weren't circulated. But at one time, there was a $10,000 bill. Of course, that very bill today isn't worth very much. <laughs> <laughs> Here's our trivia question for this week. Which U.S. state has the lowest population density in the nation? Which U.S. state has the lowest population density? If you know or want to take a guess, then get us an email to trivia at realestateguysradio.com. Trivia at realestateguysradio.com. And you could be the winner of Equity Happens. We're talking about economics and how it uh, translates to the numbers that we pay attention to and what that means to real estate investors. Our next guest is returning to the show, Anthony Randazzo's Director of Economic Research for the Reason Foundation, a nonprofit think tank advancing free minds and free markets. He specializes in housing finance, financial services regulation, and macroeconomic policy. He also works frequently on U.S. privatization, tax policy, monetary policy, and trade research. When we come back, you'll meet Anthony Randazzo right here on the Real Estate Guys radio program. Hi, this is Donald Trump, and you're listening to the Real Estate Guys. As investors survey the country for markets and properties that will perform well for them over the next five to ten years, one market in particular stands out. That's Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta was the second fastest growing MSA throughout the last decade. It's home to the world's busiest airport and has one of the highest concentrations of Fortune 500 companies in the country. Atlanta is expected to add 100,000 new people every year for the next 10 years, and just next year alone, Atlanta is predicted to add over 50,000 new jobs. Now, what if I told you you could buy fully renovated, leased, and cash-flowing investment properties in this market for half of replacement cost? That's right, three- and four-bedroom homes in good suburban neighborhoods that can be purchased completely renovated for seventy dollars to $90,000. At Georgia Residential Partners, this is exactly what we do. We've been helping investors all over the country make solid real estate purchases in Atlanta for almost seven years. Call us today at 770-924-5450 or check us out online at gainvesting.com. Hi, this is Garrett Sutton, Rich Dad's advisor. Remember, equity happens, and you're listening to The Real Estate Guys. 
Welcome back to the Real Estate Guys radio program, the number one downloaded podcast on real estate investing. We're in Las Vegas, Nevada for Freedom Fest, and it is awesome to have back with us uh, after a year break, Mr. Anthony Randazzo. He is the Director of Economic Policy at the Reason Foundation. How are you, sir? Thanks for having me back on, Robert. Absolutely. Well, uh, what you do at Reason really has a lot to do with housing, and, and so that's something our, our folks are, are interested in. So I guess the big question everyone wants to know is how close are we to a housing bottom? And, and you just don't have an opinion about that. That's a lot of what the research that you guys do. Exactly. Well, uh, we you know we try to stay away from just, just throwing out ideas and actually try to dig into what does the data say, what does historical information tell us. Yep. Uh, and yeah, you, you can look at trends, and obviously this is a very seriously different situation than coming out of the the bubble uh, uh, in the past, but you know what is what is uh, what does many bubbles look like in the past? If you look at nominal prices, they march up, uh, you know, almost without stopping over the past eighty years. Yep. Um, but if you look at prices adjusted for inflation, they're flat from the end of World War II all the way up until the nineteen nineties, um, and there's there's little increases and little dips, uh, uh, and so you can see many bubbles in that in that time span. Of course. Adjusting for inflation prices shot up. They doubled during the housing bubble. That's the real indicator of how bad this bubble was. Yep. Uh, and so now we're coming out of that. If you look at those mini bubbles, any time prices go above the sort of the historical norm, you know, they'll go up for a couple years and then they'll come back down to that norm and then they'll dip below it and call it an overcorrection. Yep. And that overcorrection lasts on average one and a half to two years. Um, after each mini bubble, and there's three or four of these that you can see over the past 80 years, um, and then comes back up to the historical norm. Never really stays there. Kind of crests back. It's, it looks like a wave. You know, yep. we never really stay at equilibrium. So now we come to this bubble. This bubble, uh, housing prices adjusted for inflation skyrocket. They double past their you know the historical norm for two decades. Hit a peak in 2006. Start tumbling back. Well, so now today. Here in the middle of 2012, we are at the, about that historical trend line. And so you, I see a lot of commenters that just look at that data point, that we're back at the historical norm, and they say, now we've reached the bottom. Right. So if you look at the data and you're interpreting the data, our analysis would suggest that we are going to go careening past that historical norm. And the, the fact that this has been so much bigger than anything else makes it difficult to suggest, you know, to extrapolate directly from historical trends. And we don't want to say with extreme confidence that because this was twice as big in the past and that 1.5 to 2 years becomes 4 years. But it could be 4, it could be 5 years. I think that that's a more realistic expectation. And so when we're thinking about housing prices, I think we need to pay attention to trends like that. Well, it would certainly seem logical that is as you're studying these mini bubbles, if there always seems to be an overcorrection, which there is in almost any market, that yep. if we've hit the trend line, well, guess what? There's still some correction you know, ahead of us. What's interesting about real estate is we often talk about how real estate is very local. Markets are different. There's not a United States real estate market. There are right. already MSAs in the area, in the U.S., where we've seen a little bit increase in prices, and we see other MSAs where it continues to go down. So how is it that you take a look at the, the big picture of the U.S. and then try to make any sense out of local markets? Sure. Well, housing is always local, obviously. That's all your uh, listeners know. Uh, you know I'm, I'm in, from Washington, and in the D.C. area, things have been pretty good for a long time. Yeah. Uh, you know, some people <laughs> have negative opinions about that. You know, <laughs> Maybe there's a reason why the top three uh, you know, um, counties in terms of wealth are around the Washington, D.C. area. Um, just a coincidence, Anthony. Just a simple coincidence. You know, correlations, not causations. Right. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's, in, it's important to any time talking about this that you know 
that there's sort of that differentiation. We tend to look at national prices for the most part because we're trying to think about how is how are the, how is the media talking about a lot of this stuff because uh, that really influences people at a local level. You know, when you listen to Fox, MSNBC, or CNN, they're speaking from New York, they're, or Atlanta, I guess, um, and, and you're absorbing that in your local market, and they're speaking in national terms. Yep. And it's very, very important for anybody when you're trying to think about these ideas at a local level to take anything on the national level with a grain of salt. So when we, we try to focus on national level stuff to be able to, to talk about you know, price trends like we were just talking about, to... to talk to opinion makers, to, to talk to people in the media, and to talk to policymakers in Washington about some of these like real hardcore national realities. Well, and you know, it's not just all about the numbers because in sentiment is huge. And if they're being influenced as they are, I, I think part of it is that, that people can only take so much bad news. And so there is this tendency from journalists to report whatever glimmer of possible hope yeah. there might be. But if I'm listening to that, I might interpret that as, oh, we're at the bottom of the market. Right. But but in fact, that's not always the case. And no, it's not. And, and I think that's actually a really important psychological trend is we get to a point where men mentally we think that it just can't get any worse, you know, or we just we just simply don't want to believe that it's possible for this to, you know, to continue on. And, um, and so you begin to look for green shoots anywhere that you see them. Uh, you know, we were pretty desperate for this in 2010. That's why you saw the Federal Reserve that, you know, they were grasping at straws. And, you know, really data you can interpret a lot of different ways. Uh, this is uh, this is a, will be a problem for forever when you're looking at data. Is you can f sometimes you can find what you want if you twist it and you, you play with it. And you play with it enough. Um, my sense is that we need to have long-term perspectives. Uh, we need to take in a full amount of history, and we need to be much more cautious because some of the things that went into causing our most recent crisis were short-term thinking and less cautious thinking, and not paying attention to historical norms. Obviously, our listeners are primarily real estate investors. One of the glimmers of good news for us is that a bad housing market isn't all bad as long as there's renters. We're seeing that folks who aren't able to own anymore are renting. In some markets, rents are up. And yet, it seems like, from where we sit, that the, the if you will, the sale will continue. So I know you don't have a crystal ball, but does it seem like, from the research you do, that it's still a ways to go while we're going to see this down market in real estate? From a national perspective, I think, yes, uh, from, from a national level, uh, we are going to have persistent downward pressure on housing prices. And uh, you can look at something like where interest rates are at right now. Uh, historically low interest rates can only go that much further. Right. You know, who's really going to lend at 1%? Probably not going to be getting mortgages at 1%. We're, you know, it's shocking to me. I might have said that who's going to lend at 3.5%. I guess we're, I guess we're getting that <laughs> right now. Close, yeah. But even if it were to get down to 2 or 1% in, in a weird world, those prices are going up eventually. And so what we, what we are basically at the lower bound in terms of mortgage prices, which means that we have this anvil that's coming, which is prices are going to go up. The cost of getting a mortgage is going to go up, and that's going to put downward pressure on prices. Yep. So even if we were at sort of like a bottom in terms of like a historical norm, we have this additional weight that's coming on top of us. Um, I, you know, that is part of what I call the four horsemen of the housing apocalypse. You know, going into my more pessimistic view, you know, these yeah. horsemen marching back and forth across the country for the past five or so years, and I think they're going to for another five. And those four are homeowner debt, yeah, household debt is 
incredibly high. It's still at roughly historical highs, and it is not deleveraged very quickly. And it has, at a minimum, five years of deleveraging to get into a sustainable place. So you're going to have less people sort of like that are going to be in the market looking to buy. That speaks to rents. Uh, you've got the fact that you know, still 20% of homes are underwater in terms of their prices across you know, across the country. That's right. sort of the second horseman, and that's not ease something very easy to clean up. There's no really silver bullet to take care of that. Um, and, and we can disagree on policies as to how to address that, but even it, you know, no matter what the policy is, it's actually not going to take care of that anytime soon. So that's that's around for a while. Yep. Uh, foreclosures are still mounting. The shadow inventory is definitely down. You know, a year ago, when we were talking, shadow inventory is much higher than it right. is now. Yep. Plenty of debate. Is it, you know, is it, you know, a million homes? Is it 10 million homes? Well, and, and a hard thing but, to yeah. track, too. It's an incredibly hard thing to track. And how does, you know, and any policy related to underwater debt is going to impact the shadow inventory. So yep. you're having to price into that estimate what you sort of perceive happening in that element. But one we, one thing we know is that there are going to be several million more foreclosures at a minimum over the next several years, and they're going to bleed very slowly into the market. Uh, and that's that's not going away anytime soon. Yep. So you've got those three sort of data-driven things. But yep. I think the, the fourth problem is, is that men- mentally, we need to, the, the American homebuyer needs to wrap wrap their head around the fact that prices are never going back to where they were. Well, this is huge. This is, I, I think this is something that's overlooked. Not too many people talk about this, but even today, you'll go into a market and you'll say, well, what is this house today? And they go, well, yeah, you can get this house for 125 Now, it used to be 350 exactly. As though what it used to be someday in the past has any bearing. Like, you wouldn't say that on a stock, right? Oh, yeah, well, Apple used to be $22. Sure. <laughs> what does that mean today? No, we, you know, we, we think about housing like we think about, like, buying bargain televisions or something like that. Right, it's you know, like this flat screen TV used to be priced at two thousand dollars. Now you can get it for five hundred. When we look at that, we probably go, "Well, yeah, it wasn't properly priced at two thousand. That's why you didn't sell it at two thousand. That's why you weren't able to get rid of them because you had your those overpriced." So don't tell me what the price used to be that was impossible to sell at. Like what you know, today's price is really where it's going to be. Really, what you want to look for when you're going into to buying a home is you want to look at very local level things. Are there, is there a school being built nearby? Yep. Are there new grocery stores that are going to be built by have large companies moved to the area recently or are they planning to move you're going to have in the redmond washington area you're going to have a bunch of people leave because msnbc um, news microsoft and nbc news their his like their 10-year partnership with news has recently broke up so microsoft um, is going to be kicking out a whole bunch of nbc news people from that area you're going to have a lot of people moving out of the area yep you know, look at national stories like that if you're buying a home in Redmond, Washington. How is that going to impact prices in, in your neighborhood? Um, don't look at historical norms that were influenced by sentiments that was based in problematic national trends. All right. Well, as always, it's a great uh, chance to have you uh, share some of your information with us. If folks want to follow you and find out what you're doing at Reason, what's the best way to do that? You can go to reason.org or reason.com and look for any of our financial or housing research. All right. Thanks, Anthony. And uh, thanks for being back on the program. Thanks for having me. You're tuned to the Real Estate Guys radio program. More when we come back. I'm your host, Robert Helms. Need help with your real estate investment portfolio? Check out the resources page at realestateguysradio.com. Looking for solid cash flow in a market where the jobs are likely to stay put? This is Robert Helms. Join me September 28th through the 30th for the Real Estate Guys Investor Field Trip to Memphis, Tennessee. 
I'm excited to show you this affordable real estate market where cash flow is the name of the game. You'll meet active developers, rehabbers, property managers, plus folks from the Chamber of Commerce and many surprise guest speakers. Find out how the four R's of Memphis will virtually ensure a steady supply of qualified tenants. For all the details, visit realestateguysradio.com and click on events. Join me in Memphis for an amazing cash flow weekend. Go to realestateguysradio.com and click on events. This is Todd Buckholz, author of Rush, Why You Need and Love the Rat Race, and you're listening to The Real Estate Guys. And welcome back to The Real Estate Guys radio program. Great, great stuff from Mr. Anthony Randazzo. Yeah, it was. It's great. Second time we've heard Anthony, and uh, you know, every time it always comes out the same. Smart guy, super articulate, young guy. Yep. Very, uh, very well studied. You know, he said something I thought was really interesting. He said, housing is flat when adjusted for inflation. Right. And that's the whole thing. I mean, even in the book, Equity Happens, right? I mean, the whole thing, the title is about, hey, prices go up over time. Well, that's true. But that's really more about being a hedge against inflation, like gold or silver or any other real asset. But the point is, the point is, like, even in Equity Happens, Happens. The whole concept about the free duplex story was not about, you know, watching a property you bought go up in value. It was about as soon as the value was there, grabbing it and going out and buying more property. Yeah. The key to wealth isn't buying a property and having it go up. The key to wealth is accumulating more and more and more property. Sometimes we get confused about that, but his point about the idea that real estate really doesn't go up in terms of real value. A house is a house is a house is a house. If you can buy a house today for five cars, then that was true 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. The prices are different, but the relative value, which is the point, is the same. Well, and I think another great point when you listen to both Gene and Anthony talk about the the negative of the housing market and pricing, Gene obviously thinks of it in terms of, uh, say, a REIT, a stock, because he's kind of a stock guy, although he obviously mentioned entrepreneurs buying foreclosed houses and all of that. Anthony, who spends his time on housing policy, sees the bigger picture, but also sees that there's a couple of years or maybe up to four or five years here. They're both painting kind of negative pictures that I hope as a real estate investor, you're getting excited about. Right. It means the sale is continuing. There is going to be great inventory and we are going to have a chance still. And then layer on top of that, historic lows. What an amazing time to be a real estate investor. You know, uh, that's one of the things I think that was most optimistic about all their talk is this game isn't over. If you're into this and you've been learning how to play and getting ready to do it, good. Keep it up because you're in the perfect spot. You have to take action, so you got to be prepared. But the opportunity is obvious still in front of us. Yeah. You know, it's funny. We met a bunch of folks this last weekend who uh, expressed uh, the fact that obviously they come to an event, pay a lot of money and spend a lot of time. They listen to our show, uh, expressed that they appreciated the fact that we don't just talk about tactical real estate investing, that we have the bigger economic picture. And to your point earlier in the show, Russ, you, you have to as a real estate investor. And I think folks that don't have their mind around this who are just thinking, nah, I just want to buy, buy a house and hang on, or I just want to fix a house up and sell it. They've, they've got to see in context so they understand where where the market is going to be and where their opportunity is. Well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, right? If somebody says, hey, I'm going to buy a house, great. The problem is, is when you decide not to buy it because you hear these guys talk and you don't right. understand what they're really saying. What they're really saying is interest rates are low, lower than they're probably ever going to be. There's more renters coming in. You've got houses cheap, not just by relative standards, but I mean, just they're affordable in terms of cash flows. And again, when you talk to these guys, they don't think about 
real estate the way we think about real estate. Right. They think about real estate in terms of housing. And housing for us is a tenant living in it paying us rent. Housing to them is I go to work every day and pay the mortgage payment with my paycheck. Those are two different types of housing. A key factor about prices being lower, not depressed, being lower, is that what we're seeing everywhere today or almost everywhere are properties that are today priced below replacement cost. Just because a lot of things change, adjusted for inflation, etc., what hasn't happened is that the cost to build those properties has plummeted along with the price of the property. Well, yeah. You put the two interviews together and you get Gene saying that the printing is going on and we know it's showing up in commodities and houses are built out of commodities like lumber and steel and copper and all that kind of stuff, concrete, all those things go into it. So the cost of buying building the house is not going to be going down it's only going to be going up and at some point the demand for housing is going to exceed the available supply and right now what we've got is a problem with capacity to pay and it isn't because the money isn't there it isn't because the money isn't cheap it's just because the lending environment hasn't fully healed yet one of the leading indicators to watch in a market like this for when you can begin to see some movement in prices is going to be when leverage starts coming back into the market I track what's going on and I look at all the different types of loan programs coming out and you can see that that the industry is coming out with more and more programs trying to find ways to get money to market. That's going to continue to happen and that's going to be part of the healing process, but it's also going to be the the door closing a little bit and the opportunity that we have to acquire in a market that's got this, such unique characteristics as we have today. Right. For a couple of years, we've been talking about how we've got a couple of years and now we think we have a couple of years more, but there's going to come a time where we're going to say, hey guys, you know, the window is slamming shut. So hopefully between now and then you'll have taken the proper action. I thought it was interesting that Anthony used the example of Redmond, Washington. Now, that's like insider information. We don't know that MSNBC is closing down that big facility, but that's common knowledge in what he does, what his part of the business is. Yet, what did we do? We just came from a seminar on the due diligence process. If you were thinking about being an investor there, would it serve you well to know that that was going to happen and would be a local impact on the market? Most of that information is available, but nobody's going to come knock on your door and say, hey, you know what I found? You'd probably like to read this. That's not how it works. It's still your job. All right. Well, big thanks to uh, both those fine gentlemen for being on the uh, program today. And uh, in the coming weeks, we've got a bunch of great interviews that we had a chance to do at Freedom Fest. You'll hear more of those, including one of the best song authors in history across the board. Mark Victor Hansen will be on the Real Estate Guys radio show and a return visit from our friend Steve Forbes. Thanks so much for tuning into the program today. Be sure and tell a friend about the Real Estate Guys radio program. If you want to get your head around economics and have meaningful discussions with other real estate investors, with the Real Estate Guys, with the Godfather, with the economist Mark Skousen, and with the amazing Peter Schiff, then you need to be on the 2013 Investor Summit at Sea. It's going to be an extraordinary event. Go to the website at realestateguysradio.com. Click on the button that says Summit, and you can learn more. Until next week, go out and make some equity happen. This episode of the Real Estate Guys Radio Show is brought to you by Paradigm Life. Powerful cash management strategies using life insurance. Learn more at beyourbank.com. Mid-South Home Buyers, low-cost, turnkey cash flow properties in Memphis, Tennessee. Corporate Direct, asset protection strategies for real estate investors from attorney and rich dad advisor Garrett Sutton. 
Find these and other great companies under the Resources tab at realestateguysradio.com. To learn how you can expose your product or service to the Real Estate Guys audience, call 888-489-7723, extension 4. That's 888-489-7723, extension 4. Or use the feedback page at realestateguysradio.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week right here on the Real Estate Guys Radio Show.